0: All right, so hello everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories Podcast. I'm Neil Leiser, I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Mark Freeman. Mark first did a Bachelor of Sociology at University of California, Davis, and then did a Master of Science in Community Health and Prevention Research at Stanford. He worked at a bunch of startups in data science, and he's now actually a senior data scientist at Humu. But he's also an entrepreneur. He founded, I think, four startups in total, and he's now the CEO of On The Mark Data, where he works on consulting and content creation. So today we're going to talk about Mark's career, about his master at Stanford, about working in startups in data science, and about entrepreneurship. So, if you enjoyed the episodes, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, AI Stories, and follow Mark and I on LinkedIn. We're posting quite frequently. All right. So now let's start with the fun. Hi, Mark. How is it going?
1: Hey. Thanks for the the really kind intro, and super excited to to be here and chat with you about data. One of my favorite things to do.
0: Yeah. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in from the US. Yeah. Great to have you and yeah, really looking forward for this conversation. Yeah. So first of all, so I mentioned this in the intro, you did a bachelor in sociology, which I guess is quite different from what you're doing now. So how did you make this transition from sociology to data science and AI
1: yeah, that, that's actually, I, I don't get that question um, that often because most people just focus on like the Stanford masters and, and healthcare, but I would argue actually sociology made me a really great data scientist. Um, so for, for context, how I kind of end up in sociology, I was pre-med for a very long time, Thought I was going to be a doctor for a while. And so when I was in community college, I was taking my pre-med science courses and I was a science uh science major and I took all the sociology classes because they're just so interesting and I went to the counselor like look you can transfer out of community college as a as a science major in three years or you took all the sociology classes you need on accident and you can transfer like right now (laughs) and so I was like I'm out of community college I'm gonna go to sociology I just kind of followed my interests and kind of the the cool thing about sociology is that it teaches you to deal with ambiguity um, it gives you kind of like essentially you're looking at society and behaviors and it l- gives you a framework to think about behaviors in society and to explain them. And so thinking about data science, we have a population of data and typically I work with behavior data. And so trying to come up with a framework and in this time through like statistical models to explain the nuances of human behavior. And so they actually align pretty well. And, you know, a lot of my stuff, I found that I've getting the most traction from data science when I write about it. Um, So whether it's LinkedIn or blogs or things of such, and sociology was just heavy, heavy writing. Um, So it's all kind of, it all worked out, but it was something I was not expecting. Um, I just kind of did the major because it got me out of community college quicker, and
0: I just loved it. So it's interesting that you mentioned analyzing behavior of people. Like, do you think that this help you help you actually become a better data scientist? And how, how did you work on this? Analyzing like the behavior of people.
1: Definitely. So, um, so think about like community health, um, you know, so my backgrounds in community health and and healthcare. So I did sociology, but I was still taking these pre-med courses. So like had this healthcare sociology. So many times you think about it, health is behaviors. And so how do you convince people to change their behaviors to, um, you know, to live a healthier life? And more importantly you know, we have these individual interactions, right? And that's one form of interventions, but then you have these population level interventions. So like, how do you get a whole community to change their behaviors? And so I think one, one experience that really like highlighted this was when I worked at the Stanford well, uh, well for life lab so i was a data analyst there that was one of my, my first data roles and essentially i was doing um uh kind of like behavior analysis of uh there's there's multiple studies but i think one of them I was looking at the impact of homelessness on um the impact of homelessness on well-being And so we had all these different kind of behavioral factors um, regarding people's well-being and how they interact with society, as well as their their homelessness status from uh, a data set we have from partnering with a a homeless shelter. And yeah, that was was one of those instances where I got to take my sociology kind of domain knowledge, I got to take my community health domain knowledge, and then tie it with my statistics skills and R and do a really cool analysis with it.
0: Okay, so it, it wasn't too different from data science, actually, you were still analyzing data to drive decisions in some sense.
1: Um, Definitely. And I think it wasn't necessary to drive decisions because again, this research, um, there wasn't a decision being made off of it. It was more so to understand uh, a context from that. And so um, I will say though, that I didn't really get into statistics until I did um, my master's. So before my master's, I was only doing qualitative research.
0: Okay, cool. So, so, so let's talk about your master now. Like I mentioned, you you studied at Stanford. So, my first question would be, how you got into Stanford? How did you manage to, to get in?
1: Yo, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know how I made that happen. Um. So, so context. So, I was undergrad. I studied sociology. I was taking these pre med courses. I was like very gun ho about being a doctor, but I suck at science classes. Like I was just getting like D's. And Cs, and then I was getting As in my sociology class. So, I, like, I got a smooth, like, you know, B average with with those kind of extremes. And so, uh, out of my undergrad, I was like, I was not competitive to to go to grad school or go to to med school, if any of that. And so, I I looked for work to try to take like what's called a gap year and. Somehow, you know, I applied in undergrad, I applied to hundreds of jobs. And the only yes I got was at Stanford to work in student affairs. And I worked in the social impact uh, office, um, Haas Center for Public Service, where I advised students on how to do uh, social impact projects. So while I was an undergrad in community college, I I found a whole bunch of community programs. I created scholarships, I developed mentorship programs, all these different things. And so that kind of like gave me an edge to go work at Stanford because I'm like, I've done this before as a student. Now you can teach other students how to do that. So I'm at Stanford. Um and I'm I'm thinking to myself, all right, I have this this role is only a contract for a year. That's very intentional because I want to I want to do grad school. I was planning on doing what's called a post back. So in the US, um you can do a post back to improve your chances of getting to medical school. So essentially it's two options. You did you were just a career changer and you need to take all the science classes. Or you sucked at science classes like myself, and so you're retaking all of them to make yourself more competitive. So I was planning on doing that, but while I was at Stanford, I learned about this program called CHIPPER, which is the Community Health Prevention Research. And I was reading the program. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is exactly my sociology background, my social impact, the healthcare. This is exactly what I want to do." So I only applied to one master's program, and it was, it was the Stanford program because so it just it just fit so much, and. Um, I honestly, they honestly took a bet on me because my GRE score was low. My, my, my grades were not Stanford level. um, But essentially like I know how to write well from sociology. So I wrote a really strong essay. Um, I even have my essay that I believe that got me in on my medium. So I can, I'm happy to link that so other people can see um, where I basically made this whole argument of like, I was a bad student undergrad, and that's why I'm an asset to your program. <laughs> um, and I made a strong case for that. And so uh, through through my letters of rec and my community impact work and just writing well, I was able to make a really strong case that, you know, my grades aren't the only thing about me. I, you know, I have this other potential about me and they listened and it's I got in and I made the most of the opportunity.
0: Well, that's, that's quite crazy. So Not so, well, bad, great in some sense, but still you're writing really well. You do a good letter and you manage to get into Stanford, which is probably the best university in the world or one of the best. Yeah,
1: it's one of, I mean, I I remember I got the acceptance letter um, email and it's wild because I I received it a month after I submitted my application. And my initial thought was like, oh wow, this is a mistake. Like (laughs) they responded too early and then it clicked. I was like, oh my gosh, I got in. I called my mom. And my mom literally said, you changed the trajectory of our family. And like that, just like, oh, man, I, I, you know, as a, as my, near my parents went to college. So, um, you know, to be able to provide that and like, you know, my, my family invests a lot in me to to make that happen is just, it means the world to me that I was able to like tell my mom that. So uh, it was great.
0: Yeah. I think it's also a super good example. That's, you should just try, right? Like you don't yeah. need to have like the best grades in the world and I don't know, um, have done 10 internships or things like that before applying to Stanford or even Google or big companies. Like you should just try and sometimes it works and you're the perfect example of this. I mean,
1: yeah. And and here's the thing too, is like after I submitted the application, I wasn't expecting it in. I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to try because I was going to apply to postbacks right afterwards. So that was my plan, to, like improve my GPA. Um, but by writing that application, it forced me to reflect what I wanted out of my career and out of my education, what, what goals I had. And so I was like, after I submitted the application, I was like, I already won. I, I have a clear plan of what I'm going to do now with or without this program. And it was just a bonus that I got into the program.
0: So let's talk a bit about the program. Like, is this actually where you started learning more about stats and data science and stuff like that? And how did you Yeah. How did you learn about this essentially?
1: Yeah, 100%. So for me, um, a big reason why I wanted to go into this program was that my background was in qualitative research. So I did like, I had like award-winning kind of sociology research on like the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, it was all qualitative kind of stuff. And so I was like, all right, I have this qualitative research, but to be like a a great researcher, I think I need to do this uh, quantitative side. And so um, I I went to the program with the intention of taking um, you know trying to get really good at quantitative uh, analysis, and I just fell in love with it. I just could not stop. <laughs> I struggled with it immensely. So again, not the best student, um, but I took a uh, a public health modeling class, and that was my first introduction to R, first introduction to statistical models to explain our world, and it just blew my mind. So uh, Dr. Sanjay Basu, um, shout out to him because he he introduced me to a lot of this stuff and I really fell in love with it. Um, and he ended up being one of my uh, readers for my, my thesis, which I was super excited about. Um, he has his own uh, kind of health tech ML company now, which is great. Uh, I think it's Wayfair, Waymark. I can go find that for you, but it's a really cool company doing ML and, and, and healthcare, Medicare space. But essentially... Um, that was the first course. I was like, this is great. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, I like this. Let me take every single stats course I get into. So the next course was like this advanced regression course <laughs> that I it was taught in R. The tests were in R. Um, uh, and keep in mind, I like I just learned R like a week ago. So I'm like thrown into like the lion's den of R and statistical analysis. And honestly, like <laughs> I uh I almost failed that class. It was really rough. Um, and so the person I always love to give a shout out to is Doc, uh, not Docker, um Brandon Foltz. He has a YouTube channel um, for statistics. And he really came at the right time when I found his videos because I was freaking out. I was like, I'm going to drop out of this course. I'm never going to do statistics. Like my dream of doing data science is just going to be gone. And his video started off with like, hey, you're probably here because you're struggling take a deep breath, it's gonna be okay. And I needed to hear that at the moment (laughs) because that's exactly what happened. And his videos taught me the basics of statistics for regression and everything and got me up to speed. So when I went to the professor, I was like, look, hey, this is a struggle right now. Should I drop this course or should I stay? The professor was like, look, I know you suck at stats. So (laughs) we're gonna spend some extra time to make sure you're up to speed and make sure you pass. Fast forward, I passed that class, luckily, the next course, which is in the, the advanced observational studies, which is now a kind of a core piece of what the stuff I do now, um, I went from being a horrible student to being one of the top students in that class and teaching others. So, again, it really shows like perseverance, perseverance, but more importantly for teachers to not give up on students who may come off as bad, because if you give them a chance and really support them, they can actually grow to be kind of top performers. And so that that experience really stuck with me now as I teach others and and mentor others to meet them where they're at. Because, you know, if people really want to do it, they'll make it happen. And they just need a little bit of support at the right time. And that's what I received while I was in that class.
0: Cool. That's yeah, that's super interesting to hear that yeah, you shouldn't give up. And also if you're someone, well, you should help people that are struggling or that are well, I guess less good than you, because it's not because they're bad right now that they're going to be bad forever, right? They can improve. Mm -hmm. And if you inspire them, they can actually change quite a lot.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that that really, really stuck me because that that teacher could just gave up on me and I would have not been a data scientist. I was like, all right, I guess I'm not cut out for this. And and they didn't. And so, uh, yeah, and I got obsessed with it. I was spinning out on top of my courses, just like, 20 hours a week, just learning our stats because I just loved it so much. Um, and it was having a time in my life.
0: So so you essentially discover statistics there during your master. You struggle at the beginning, but then you start to actually become quite good. And this, yeah. is, this is where you actually realize, okay, after Stanford, I'm going to work as a data scientist. I want to do that for the next couple of years.
1: Yep. so that's, that's exactly what happened. So um, what's funny though is that Grad school is hard. Grad school is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and grad school kind of broke me. So <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I went through a lot during that and like it really shot my confidence. And so I had a lot of imposter syndrome, which is wild. Like I'm graduating from Stanford. <laughs> I'm learning all these stats, but here I am with all this imposter syndrome. So I just took the first job I could have got out of, out of, uh, out of my grad program, and it wasn't even in in data. I took an operations role at a health tech company that was startup, um, and ended up being really great uh, for for the timing. It's what I needed at the time um, to build up that confidence and that skill set. And so, uh, but it was funny because I was working with people who were fresh out of undergrad with no job experience, and I had job experience and my masters and all the skill set. Uh, I was really overqualified for the role, but Mm -hmm. again, made the most of it. And in operations, I just learned about health data um, from the claim side. And then also in operations, there's a lot of Excel workflows. So I taught myself Python and started automating all my Excel workflows as a way to kind of uh, build up those data skills while I had a non-data
0: job. Okay, no, I see. So since Stanford, you worked at a bunch of startups. You mentioned the first one, Um, Now you're at Humu, you've done other startups as well. So is there a particular reason why you choose startups rather than companies or something like that? I love startups.
1: So (laughs) I think one, one of the key things is like one, through my master's, I realized I didn't want to be a doctor. I was in grad school. If you can see a theme, I'm a bad student. Like I don't get good grades. I don't enjoy school. I don't know why I did a master's, but here I am. Uh, and that made me realize med school is not for me. And so that's why I, I switched to data science. Um, and while I was at Stanford, I got exposed to startups in the, the tech ecosystem. Um, and it just blew my mind because the thing is, like, I wanted to do medicines. I want to drive social impact. Um, but then while I was learning at Stanford, I was like exposed to tech. and I was like, wait, I can drive social impact at scale through this technology and companies. And as I became obsessed with that, like how do you start with the idea and bring it to market and then scale it to impact millions of people? Like that process just blows my mind. Um, And so I wanted to learn how to recreate that. So that's why I go after startups is, you know, I want to go to a specific stage of startup going from larger to smaller to smaller to smaller uh, so I can see what that process is so I can replicate it for myself. Um so I've worked in uh, non-data roles in a startup and now I switched to data roles within startups. And now,, um, you know i've I've put models into production. I've helped build kind of data warehouse infrastructure. I've done all these different kind of data things of going from like ideation to like scaling up data. And uh, these are all skills and data points for my own personal journey. That I want to implement when I'm trying to build a scalable startup in the future.
0: So, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned you want to get into startups because you want to launch your own company. And so you will learn how this works. But don't you also want to explore like larger companies? Because if your company is doing well, um, I mean, you will need to scale up. And that's like kind of a different process. Also, like, I mean, if you do lots of startups, at some point you will get it. All right. That's how it works. But don't you want also to explore other things like bigger companies or medium companies? What do you think about this?
1: Man, I, I struggle with this every day. Mm. <laughs> I really, I'm really on the fence because I love the culture of startups, how fast and flexible and like, you know, you have a small tight knit group of just like really trying to do the impossible on you know, most startups fail to so to actually get success as startups is such a great feeling. Uh, but at the same time, like the larger companies pay very well they have a lot more resources. They have more defined infrastructure. Um, and the scale of problems they work on is at a completely different level that I just don't know how to think at yet. So part of me definitely wants to work at a larger company um, just to experience that. And what my mentors have told me as well is like working at a larger company is great because if you're a startup, you're going to be selling to these larger companies. So you have to know how they work. And so that's been a kind of a thing in my mind of like, all right, eventually in my career, I'm gonna have to go work at a larger company, um, and maybe I'll like it. Maybe, maybe I'm just—it's in my head that like startups are the best place, and I just don't want to leave. Um, and I go to a larger company, and you're like, "Whoa, I made a mistake!" Like, larger companies are where it's at, but I keep on being pulled to startups. It's just so exciting for me, um, and so I'm really on the fence about that. So, <laughs> if you're listening and you have an opinion, reach out to me on LinkedIn. <laughs> Give me your best pitch of why I should be at the big companies. <laughs> Because the startups have just been really just the core part of, uh, core part of my career now. And I just love it so much.
0: Yeah, I think as, as long as you enjoy it and you keep learning, I mean, why not? There is not a clear rule. I personally, I don't know, in life, I like to explore things, which means like I would like to try different kind of things. But maybe, I don't know, I would really like startups. For At, at the moment, I'm in a medium company and I really enjoy it. I think it's like the good trade-off between startups and large companies, we are like a couple of hundreds, so still quite big. But yeah, um, I like to explore things, which is why I ask these questions, but maybe I will just really like medium companies and yeah, stay there all my life. We kind of never know. I think as long as you keep learning, you should, and there is not a clear reason to leave, right?
1: Definitely. And I think it's like, depending on the week you ask me, my answers are going to change. I go back and forth on this all the time. Um, Because yeah, there's like, they work on different data problems. Uh, So like in startups, I'm more worried about like, all right, how do I build infrastructure to enable ML? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how, how do I validate that ML solutions actually what the market wants? Uh, Those are very startup problems and, in larger companies they are like, we've already figured out the product market fit. We're just trying to grow the pie, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, grow, grow the opportunity here. And so you're just going to be optimized as ML model or like you have this infrastructure already, so you can deploy ML model pretty easily. So it's two different problem spaces. Um, I eventually see myself moving over. Um, Here I go flipping again. (laughs) I eventually see myself moving over uh, just to try to experience that, um, that different level of stuff or stay with one startup until it grows to a big one. Um, Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. that, That could also happen as well.
0: So so do you feel that you're learning a lot when you're working in a startup? Will you advise this to other people or people who want to get started in data science?
1: Definitely. So I love working as a startup. Um, You know, it's definitely forced me to to grow really fast. Um, You know, the opportunities I get. So I've only been a data scientist like officially since November 2019. So like, that's not even three years yet. So um, I'm already a senior data scientist, um, and getting a lot of responsibility thinking about data strategy within our company. Um, And so, you know, being in a startup is, it's, it's hard work. It's, you're really just thrown in there to figure it out. Um, but if you have that type of, you know, mindset and and personality where you enjoy that ambiguity, again, that's sociology. Sociology is always working with ambiguity. Mm. Um, you know, I love that. I love not having a clear future. I love having completely different opportunities ahead of me. And just the mentality of like, all right, something's broken or something needs to be fixed. Just jump in and do it yourself. I love that. And so if you have that type of, um, type of kind of personality, I think startups are great because you can really just accelerate your career because um, you're given so much responsibility so early. Uh, you know, if you don't have that type of propensity, um, then startups can be a really tough place as an early career individual because you don't get much structure, you, you know, um, and if you need that structure to start off early in your career, um, I think big companies definitely provide that because they have those resources on board properly. But many times when I go to a startup, I just get a laptop and they're like, cool, figure it out. <laughs> and then you kind of do it. Um, you know, my my the recent startup I'm at right now actually had an amazing onboarding process, which was pretty cool. But um, you know, it's startups are all different. <laughs> so you get you get what you get, but it's all, always fast paced, flexible, and ambiguity.
0: I feel like correct me, well, I'm happy to hear what you think, but what I feel is In startups, you will kind of scratch the surface of a lot of things, like do a lot of things, like manage people, deploy models, um, get some data analysis. Whereas maybe in larger companies, you will go deeper into a specific problems, like improve this particular ML models to, uh, ML model to, I don't know, improve the accuracy or, well, recommend better content or things like that. So you will go deeper into the problem. Whereas in startups, you're kind of, working on lots of different things and maybe in less details, but you might also have more impact because you, I mean, you're a startup, right? So you need to build. Exactly.
1: I think, I think you're spot on with that because um, in the startup, like one week I'm like working on deploying an NLP model. Another week I'm building dashboards (laughs) to surface to to end users. Another week I'm doing data engineering and doing like an ETL pipeline, right? And so I, I would argue, you know, I have a lot of surface level experience where I can just go from that zero to one phase of like ideation to like bring something to market um, or bring a, a, a new feature to, to the product, right? I'm really great at that because I can just, I can just see all these different pieces and know where to connect them and just jump in and just start building, right? Um, and it's not to say that I'm doing low quality work, uh, it still has to be production level, but you know, it's move fast so you can get a product out to the market. And then from there, determine, is this worthwhile to invest in? If it's no, you don't want to spend all this extra time, right? Because you want to have your time as minimal as possible. If it's yes, then you dive in and actually improve it and bring like a V2, V3, V4. Um, And so that's where I really focus in a lot is this kind of like V0, V1, moving very quickly, Um, to see like what the market actually wants.
0: Can you maybe explain in more details, like one particular project that you've worked on in a startup? Like you mentioned, you've done all those things, but like one particular AI project where you actually (laughs) impacted the business.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be hilarious. So it's not an AI project, but it connects to AI. And it's going to sound ridiculous, my dashboarding project was actually the most impactful thing I did in the company. Um, so my manager essentially had this kind of OKR, increased data access within an entire organization. Mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, again, startups, you have a lot of flexibility. They trust you. Like, here's his
0: ultimate goal. Just figure it out,
1: which was great. I love
0: that. That's all, that's, so, all your, sorry, that's all your manager told you, like um, OKR and yeah, figure it out.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And the thing is, though, she knows I thrive on that. So she was meeting me where I was at. So if if I had a different personality, she'll probably change it, change it up. But she knows I like that, um, like that ambiguity and figuring it out. And I've delivered on on this type of situations before. So she, she just tries to like, look, just keep me updated and you'll see what happens. Um, and I love that. So essentially what I did was um, I was like, all right, how do I increase data access to the organization? And I'm at a startup, so I can easily talk to people. Um, so I went and basically went to every single department, found a key stakeholder, and asked them three questions um, What data do you use today? What's working? And what's not working? Um, and got a really good profile of all the data within our company. Um, got a great profile of, you know, What are the things they like that I don't need to focus on? Mm -hmm. And then I also got a lot of information what was not working. And many times they were just saying, look, we just don't even use data because it's so hard to access. And so um, I essentially created um, from that information, I was like, look, here's all our data sources. If we focus on these XYZ data sources um, and made it easier for people to access who weren't data people, it would drive so much impact because then people would go from, I don't know what the data is to, here's the data. How can I make a decision before I talk to a customer? And so, essentially, I went into uh, our data warehouse and created essentially data marts. Um, we took our very complicated, very hard-to-use data to for context with NoSQL SQL. So very nested, <laughs> unstructured, um, or uh, non-denormalized—that's the mm-hmm. correct term—and um, put some structure around it, and created a, a dashboard so that non-technical people could easily see the data, and download the data, and have real-time insights. And so you may be thinking, like, hey, "This is not AI. Like, how is this? How is this connected to AI?" You just made some dashboards, and it drove so much impact because it shifted the culture of the company from "We have data, but we don't know what's happening to." We use data to make our decisions. And now, since more people are using the data, we're finding more problems with the data infrastructure. We're finding more opportunities to be handled with data. And now the conversation shifted from, oh yeah, ML will be nice, to actually, ML is a great opportunity because what we're doing with the data today. And through that, we're able to get more buy-in for doing data infrastructure to actually have ML ops, to actually implement ML machine learning models properly. And so, you know, the impact may not be the fancy ML model. It's just getting people to drive forward in their data maturity to understand what's even possible with ML and painting that picture as easily possible for them. And so without those dashboards, people wouldn't be as hungry for data and we wouldn't have the buy-in to actually deploy, not deploy, to to pursue uh, machine learning the way we want in our data science team.
0: So if I understand correctly, you before your project, data was difficult to access and difficult to use um, for the wider business or other areas mm-hmm. in the business. And so you made even,
1: it, yeah, oh, to, for, I'm for, oh, sorry, sorry, interrupt. Go ahead.
0: No, I just wanted to ask whether you actually made it easier for people to use this data, essentially.
1: Definitely. So I think two, two kind of points about that is like for non-technical people, they just weren't using data. And so now out of nowhere, they have access to data that was easily, they can check anytime. The second thing is for the data science side, the, what kind of sparked this project was I got assigned an analysis a product analytics uh, and it took me 20 hours to pull the data and get the data set just to even work. And I was like, never again. Mm-hmm. And so now it takes five minutes.
0: Okay, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's actually a big impact. I'm I'm curious how you, or have you even measured this impact in terms of how many people have access to the data or how long it takes to load the data? How do you measure whether your project was successful or not?
1: Definitely. Um, so I wish we could measure, but we just do not have the infrastructure actually like measure. I'm pretty sure like uh, we use like data studio. I probably could go into the logs and see how many people mm-hmm. opened it. Um, but that's not really worth, worth my time. There's a startup. There's so many other priorities going on, but what, something I did was um, so Essentially, you know, when you finish a project, that's not the end point. The end point is afterwards where you actually evangelize the project and make people aware of the value it brings and then constantly communicate what that value is. So after I released kind of these dashboards and these data marts, I created a Slack channel called Curated Data. Um, and I invited all the non-technical people there and technical people and said, hey, here's these dashboards. I did a quick demo uh, for the company saying, like, this is how you use it. And so now people used to come to me directly in, in my Slack messages, like, hey, Mark, can you help me with this data? I'm like, no, go to the curated data. And I start pushing people over there. That channel is so lively now of questions asking about our data and conversations about data just wasn't there before. And so even though it's not like a strong measure, it's a proxy and, and it's clear and visible to leadership that people want access to this data and are constantly using it. And if it goes down, people are greatly impacted.
0: Yeah, it's funny. We have, I would say, something quite similar in our company. Like, it's called data success. And it just, every question's regarding the data and how do I use this or how do I create this view? And yeah, it's actually a super important channel. Every every time someone, usually slightly more non-technical people, but also technical people sometimes have questions like what's the best way to get this data or to get this view and all the questions around data is actually in a single stack channel so looks like we're yeah, doing and the same thing
1: yeah same same thing and also what's really helpful is that now i have a log of all the questions of what's working and what's not working for what I, for the internal tool i built and i can use that to create more internal internal tools and features
0: Cool. So I just want to ask a last question on the startup, and then move to the entrepreneur side of things. So I saw you recently, I think quite recently, posted something on LinkedIn where you almost made lose one million or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, um, I just want to know what happened there. Can you chat a bit about? Yeah.
1: I totally can. So, uh, that was my first official data science role. And, um, again, startup sink or swim. I was sinking because I, I was basically thrown into a role where like, all right, cool. You're a new data scientist, your first data science role. You're going to go work with sales and essentially you're going to provide this data. So sales can go to potential customers and say like, Hey, we know about X, Y, Z. Right. Um, and typically in those things, it was in healthcare, um, when sales went to these domain experts to sell to them, they already knew the answer. And so they were just trying to validate if sales knew the answer as well. Cause if so, um, you know, they were more likely to buy, right? And so it was very important for me to get accurate numbers. <laughs> and as a data scientist, you know, you're given it, you're typically given a request, you know, like, hey, we want ABC, right? But many times, if you're more experienced data science, you know, like the first ask is actually not what they want. Typically, it's they don't know what they want. And I think a great example of showing non-technical people trying to describe what they want is, you know, if you think about an Excel table, you can tell me about one row, you know, it's like X, Y, Z person at this timestamp, you know, they did they did this log right now. Tell me about a million rows. And you just glance at that. That's way too hard to comprehend. Right. And so they need insights and statistics. So imagine a non-technical person trying to make a request about millions of rows. They're going to ask bad things, right? And so our role as a data scientist is to help guide our stakeholders to better questions to ask about our data. I didn't have that skill set yet. And so I just took things at face value. I was like, oh, they asked for ABC. I'm going to deliver ABC. But in reality, they actually want X, Y, Z. And we don't have Z. So we have to figure out something else, right? And so... I delivered numbers that were completely wrong because I forgot a key piece of business logic. And more importantly is I didn't communicate clearly that they were preliminary numbers. So sales were like super happy. They're like, we got these numbers. We can go up to the sale. They go and present the numbers and they're like, these are completely off. What Are you guys even scientists? <laughs> um, and, and they almost lost the deal because of the numbers I gave. Um, and that was such a rough thing because the the thing that's most important as a data scientist is that people trust the numbers you give. And for the sales team, they lost trust in me. Um, and that was a really hard time in my career where I had to work extra hard to rebuild that trust. And thankfully I eventually did with the majority of people in the company. But through that, you know, even though it was a rough experience, I almost lost the company a million dollars in a sale. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I'm really happy for that experience because I was like, I never want to experience that again. How can I prevent that? And so um, I've talked also in other posts, um, something I call the tribe framework that I created. And um, I don't think it's necessarily novel in that, like, I think people already do this, but the what the tribe framework does is just puts in the model just to quickly like grasp it. And so tribe stands for talk, requirements, iterate, build, and evangelize. And I kind of already talked about it in my previous project, but talk, I'm gonna talk through the problem with you so I can better understand it. And it can, can go different ways. Either people come to a problem with you and you ask clarifying questions or kind of like my data access project, I go to people and ask "What's what are the pain points. From there, um, I get a clear picture. And so now I wanna brainstorm and think about the requirements. I go through the requirements. I say like, you know, I need this table. I need to do this technology you know, all these different things. And a key thing is building assets that can get feedback on. So I'll do table shells. So like fake data in, in Excel um, to give like, what's the output of it, right? Or if it's a graph, I'll just do MS Paint <laughs> and say like, hey, here's what's going to look like. And then iterate. I go back to the stakeholders and say like, hey, this is how I interpreted your requests. This is what the final output's going to be looking like. Is this correct? And many times they're going to be like, you know what? I asked for this. But actually, I was completely wrong. Can we do this instead? And so before you even write a line of code, before you pull any data, I'm getting this information and it says two things. One, my stakeholder trusts me a lot because I'm asking for the feedback and clarifying and they see me doing the due diligence. And two, now it's our project. It's not just me creating a solution. They're actively coming up with ideas and now they have buy-in because people want to support their own ideas. So you iterate until you get buy-in and you get confirmation, like, this is what you want to do. Then you build it. This is the fun part for data science. You know, you do what you do. And like I said earlier, after you build it and it's complete, that's not the end of the project. You have to evangelize it. You have to make it clear. Cool. I built this. The stakeholder and I collaborate on this. You go to the stakeholder and the company overall. This was the pain point. This is the solution. And therefore, this is the value proposition if you use a solution and make it very clear to as many people as possible that impact. And from there, I just repeated that process over and over again since that mistake, and I just hit it out of the park every single time. It just just created guardrails to make sure I never make that million-dollar mistake again.
0: Yeah, that's super cool, actually, this Tribe framework. I should actually even also use it. I'm doing some of it, but probably not everything. And yeah, I really like the part where you, well, have the scope and the requirement, and then you iterate and check with stakeholders whether is it really what you want or do you want to change things? And then you actually go on and build a project and then, yeah, you need to sell your project as well. Otherwise you've done something, but no one knows about this and it's just not useful. So yeah, really, really cool framework. Actually. I, I will start using it. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Tell me, tell me how it goes for you. I I would love to learn, learn more about it. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to teach more people about it and create a course around it eventually in the future. So right now I'm just workshopping it with people and, and telling more people about it. Just get feedback doing the talk part. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and iterating. So
0: so yeah. It definitely let you know. So so yeah, you do so basically just to recap, you you're doing this master at Stanford's, you're working then at a bunch of startups, you know, a senior data scientist at Humu. But I mentioned that on the side, you're also you love entrepreneurships, you always building startups and at the moment you're actually building on the mark data so my first question around this is why? what do you like so much about building startups and building your own stuff i guess it's yeah. i guess we touch about, upon this like at the beginning you just love startups but is there something additional that's, yeah that's just your your thing and you like that
1: Definitely. So, I mean, I love this question. And your beginning intro was so kind saying I started four companies, uh, f- four failed companies, to make it very <laughs> clear. Um, on The Mark Data is the first company that I've actually made money on. Um, and so for me is, I've kind of alluded to this, I'm obsessed with how do I bring an idea that can drive impact and improves people's lives and scale that up to as many people as possible have impact. And so for me, like I'm obsessed with this idea and it's really clicked for me when um, while I was at Stanford, I had lunch with one of my friends who was doing a uh, internship at, um, at a law office that did like mergers and acquisitions and BC stuff. Right. And when when we we're having uh, lunch, he was saying, like, I just left a meeting where they w- wrote a one billion dollar check. And for me, like I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> to write a one billion dollar check he's like wait th- they just wrote that much money and it just clicked in my head i'm like there's so much money in the world and in silicon valley like why can't i use that same money to drive impact like what why what it just clicked in my head that it was actually possible mm-hmm. um and i just wasn't even aware that was like, even a possibility and since that moment and being around tech and, and Stanford and probably drink the Silicon Valley Kool-Aid, um, I just thought, you know what? Why not me? Why can't I build a company and use it as a way to, to improve people's lives, right? Um, and also just have financial wealth and, and uh, wellness uh, for me and my family as well as, as, as part of it. And another aspect of it, too, is that when I was in uh, social impact space, I saw the funding cycle of how a lot of nonprofits and social impact works, like before I was doing social impact work, many times it's rich families or or, uh, foundations who get rich donors determining what's being actually funded and what's going to go for the community. And many times the funding source and the community have uh, needs that don't align. Mm -hmm. So many times the funding source is helping people in ways that just won't help them. Mm -hmm. And I saw that over and over again, and actually a big reason why I left social impact. And so my thought was, why can't I just make money myself, and then give it to social impact causes that and get out of the way and actually let the people choose what they want to do with it instead of me just saying like, hey, you know, I want you to build a school because I'm into education, like, they didn't need a school; they already have one, right? They needed like a food in their food desert, right? I'm just making something up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that's a lot, lot, of, lot of me saying is, you know, I think tech is a way to drive social impact at scale, and also, um, it's a way for me to become wealthy so I can actually like invest back into communities and do a lot more social impact work. Like my dream would actually just be like, you know, be financially well off and just work. And just do social impact data science work for the rest of my life that would be amazing and so i'm trying to make that happen um through that and so that's like the the moral kind of value reason of why it but then also it's just so much fun and so um i've i've tried multiple small businesses to see if i can do it by myself failed and then i've tried twice to build like a scalable startup so the first one was at uh i was in my master's at stanford Got a co-founder, we're building ideas, we're pitching, doing all these different things, and it just it was a bad idea. I was I was trying to solve social problems without solving a business problem, and so I learned a lot from that experience. The second time trying to do a scalable startup, um, it was actually right after I was laid off. And so um me and my friends from grad school were like, let's just solve a problem in healthcare. We built an MVP. We're talking to customers, uh, doing sales and stuff like that. We actually applied to Y Combinator, did the interview with Y Combinator, did a second interview to see if they wanted us, and they ultimately decided we actually didn't have the correct business model, and so they said we're not going to go with you. And um, again, we saw that we saw the feedback, and we're like, actually, our business model is completely wrong. This this business is not going to work, and so we stepped away. Um, and so each time, though, I'm seeing. I'm learning so much to be a better entrepreneur every single time. And so the last go with the Y Combinator thing, I saw so many holes in my skill set as a founder as mm-hmm. I was like, all right, let me take a step back. I don't want to start a company like this anytime soon. Instead, I want to get a full-time job, <laughs> pick up on these data skills, right? Mm-hmm. And just do a side hustle, which is on the mark data to essentially identify those skills I want to fill in. So like sales, operations, marketing, all this kind of uh founder thing you have to do as the founder. I'm going to use my side hustle as a way to learn those skills. And so that's what I've been doing. Um, I, I kind of stumbled on the Data on accident. I, I built a LinkedIn following uh, after I was laid off and I started posting constantly to be, be more competitive in the job place. And then I just kept on going because people enjoyed it and it turned into a company. And now I, I do content. Um, I advise for like data strategy. And like I said, it's like the first company that I've actually made a dollar on and, and turning a profit. And so um, I'm using it as kind of like a, a learning ground. So for the next time I do a a, a scalable startup, try to attempt it, have a much better chance of making it successful.
0: How, how does this work, this on the mark data? You mentioned consulting and yeah content creation, but how does this work? Do clients sign up through your website and then ask for your advice or yeah. How, how does it work? Yeah.
1: You- so essentially like I wasn't trying to start a company <laughs> that kind of happened on accident. And of course it's the company I start on accident that like actually makes money. Um, but I was growing my LinkedIn following, um, and people started reaching out to me like, Hey, we want to collaborate with X, Y, Z, or like, can not answer this data question for me? And I was like, um, okay, like I'll just do free calls. And they're like, what do you want in return? And then it clicked in my head. I was like, oh my gosh, people want to pay me for my expertise. Again, a whole bunch of imposter syndrome. So, um, you know, individuals were like, we want to pay you to do X, Y, Z. And it's clicked in my head. Well, then let me create an avenue for them to pay me. So I started my LLC. Um, So went online, clicked a few buttons, started LLC, got a business account and created a website on the markdata.com. And, uh, now people just come, I create content on LinkedIn every single day, um, on the weekdays and people come into my LinkedIn messages saying like, Hey, I want to collaborate. I point them directly to my website. And then that's how we a collaboration. Um, in addition, I just recently joined an agency to represent me for my content creation. So people may reach out to me and I'll point them directly to my agency and they negotiate for me. And so, um, you know, having an LLC, it just opened up a lot of opportunities that I didn't have beforehand to one be taken serious at when i'm doing collaborations because when people reach out and're like we want to do xyz i'm like great i already have a business and structure for you to do this easily very impressed and it changes the dynamic of the conversation um and in addition now with the llc like i i basically <laughs> i get funded to learn <laughs> so people pay me to learn their product or learn their tool and then i flip that into like trying to build products so um another thing i'm doing i've been really into web 3 and nfts lately mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm working with a DAO, um, shout out Charlie Dow. Um, and I'm using my LLC, and using On The Mark Data to actually help build uh, NFT analytics product uh, from the ground up and bring it to market. And so um, it's just, it's a playground for me. It's a business playground <laughs> that I just still have to make money from and I just have a really fun time with.
0: Do you feel that this part of your life, like being an entrepreneur and trying things out actually makes you become a better data scientist? And also, the opposite. Do you think that data science makes you become a better entrepreneur? I think it's
1: a good question. So, I don't think data science actually makes me a better entrepreneur. It's like a completely different skill set. But being an entrepreneur has 100% made me a better data scientist. And I think, specifically, we go back to that tribe framework, the evangelism phase um, is I know how to take an idea and sell it to, and especially a new project and sell it to my market and make it very clear that the value proposition of this and be very strategic of how I bring something to market. And so through all my entrepreneurship experience of just like, you know, when you're a founder, especially at the early stage, like you just do a lot of thinking, you're doing a lot of reading, trying to understand the market, trying to build something. You're talking to customers all the time. And you build up this skill set of this sense of just like, what's working, what's not working, making decisions very quickly. And I apply that now to when I build products. So now like it's called entrepreneurship. I do a lot of entrepreneurship where I'm able to identify opportunities in the market or within um, our company. And I just pitch them. And I know how to pitch them from doing the startup stuff. And my manager's like, that sounds great, build it. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, being an entrepreneur definitely made me a better data scientist. But the data science stuff hasn't really hasn't really been helpful as much for the beyond just building stuff, but for the entrepreneurship stuff, because I think about it, data science, you're often working with data and you have a lot of data points and entrepreneurship, especially in the founder stage, like this really early ideation, you have very little data points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of qualitative stuff and, and just putting the, just doing the work that just learn about the market. So um, yeah, it's interesting how that works.
0: That's interesting. Like I, well, I can say I'm also kind of the CEO of my small company. The podcast is not really a startup, but it's still like a side project. And I personally think that being a data scientist helps me because when I work in data science, in the end, I need to solve a, pro- a problem. And the problem is often super difficult and you need to be structured. You need to, as you mentioned, scope it, set the requirements and you need to be structured. Like if you don't have a structured approach, you're not going to solve the problem well, or you're going to solve it in, I don't know, in two years. And it just, yeah, it's not going to work. And here I feel when I do a podcast, in the end, I'm also solving a problem. It's something slightly different. You need to find um, listeners, you need to find guests, you need to get good content. But in the end, you need to solve problems, and I need to be structured. I need to, so some things that are applying in data science, like, being structured, scoping things, setting the requirements of what I need actually helps me, I think, get better content. So I would say some things can be useful. I agree it's like completely different, but yeah, that's just kind of my feeling.
1: Yeah, I actually really like your perspective and it's given me a chance to give a step back. I'm like, maybe I should think about this more. Maybe I should see how data science is helping me as an entrepreneur.
0: Um, I, I love you pushing back on that and sharing your perspective. I appreciate that. Um. Yeah, maybe it actually helps you and you just don't realize it so much. But yeah, yeah. so
1: close to the problem, I don't <laughs> even realize it.
0: So yeah, just want to ask two questions on your career before you finish the episode. Two quick questions. The first one, actually, we had this conversation and I realized, so you almost made the company lose 1 million. You failed for, for three startups, something like that. So you're clearly not afraid of, failing and every time you stand up again and you build something new and you're still a data scientist like you don't quit so how do you find this energy like every time those are like big failures right and yeah. you still manage to stand up and do something new how do you do that
1: that's such a great question um you know i kind of mentioned you know I, I i called my mom after i uh, gone to stanford and you know, it really comes down to, you know, my my mom and my dad, like, they sacrifice so much for me to be where I'm at, and more importantly, to do what I love. Um, you know, my mom went from being homeless and, you know, had to drop out of college because she had me, and then my dad, you know, doesn't have a college education either, and, and they both have really rough upbringings, and they sacrifice everything. For me and my little brother to be set up well. And for me, it's like I don't have an option to give up. My family didn't give up on me, so I can't give up on them. And so, you know, I have a failure, I'm set back, but, you know, it's on me to take those pieces together and really build myself up and learn from the lesson. And what I found over and over again is like, I'm actually excited for big mess ups because one, it means that I took a risk and I push myself past my limit. And therefore, I, I, I can learn from that and just grow even stronger and increase the limit next time. And so I, I think it really comes down to just like, I just don't have the option to, to give up. You know, my, my family didn't give up. And so I can't give up. Um, I, I, I got I to got really <laughs> work hard for my family to, to make them proud. And I know I'm making them proud now, Um, for the longest I didn't know if I was, (laughs) but I think that's where it really comes down to is like, if my mom could do it, I can do it.
0: Cool. No, that's yeah. Super insightful. Um, Yeah. It's quite impressive. Like I can see, I mean, sometimes I just, I don't know One, I record an episode that doesn't go well and I feel bad, but that's like a small failure. Right. But I could see you had some big things and you still stand up. So yeah, that's yeah. Well done. That's Really thank you.
1: I I appreciate it. You know, shout out to my to my mom and my dad, to my family. They they they're the true people that hold me down. And my and my wife. Oh my gosh, my wife, she's with me thick and thin. She believes in me when I don't. And if she believes in me, I can do anything. So um, so yeah, it's all about your support network.
0: So, one last question before we finish the episodes, like just one advice. If you had one advice for someone to progress in their data science machine learning career what would it be just one advice
1: mm, that's oh man it's hard as i'm thinking multiple of them now um, but trying to stick to one is i think the biggest thing is learn how to empathize if you can learn how to empathize and understand other people's needs from their perspective you know you can start building solutions that genuinely help them um, many times i think data Data folks or just technical folks, they get so excited about the technology. I've been there before, um, that they just build something, and it doesn't help. It's just it's just cool looking, right? But you know, being able to empathize and be like, this person has this struggle here, that can help you guide you to make decisions to build better products, build better analyses that actually get to the core need, even if other people can't can't really communicate that clearly to you. So learning how to communicate and empathize is will probably be the biggest thing for your career because you know whether it's building or even doing data strategy um or even just talking to people on podcasts like this like being able to empathize and connect with people um it it gives you more information to do better but also it gives you connection um and that that really helps you kind of stay in the long run uh for these things especially when you make mistakes
0: all right, yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks so much for this conversation. I yeah actually learned quite a lot from you. So yeah, thanks. Was great to chat with you. Yeah have have a good day in the US, and hope to catch up very soon. Let me know if you come to London at some point. We'll be happy to to meet.
1: <laughs> that that would be great. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, thank you so much. This is so much fun. Um, I really appreciate you you taking the time to to have me on here, and um and you know, talk to your, talk to your guests. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.